Some new music there going on for our video, didn't we? That's awesome. We're starting a new section today in our study, the gospel in Genesis. And we're in Genesis 12 today. We're going to be working through two chapters. Don't panic, verses 1 to 9 is our core text for the day. And I hope um, that you're involved in a growth group. Uh, because your growth group that studies along with us, all of our growth groups are discussion-based, and they study along beside of us the text. There's a lot of things that they're going to dig into that I'm going to bring up and cover today. And so let's stand with us in honor of God's Word as we begin our time together in His Word. We stand not out of dead tradition. We stand because our authority is this book right here as Christians. And when it speaks to us, here's what we say in. When this book speaks, God speaks. And so today, God is speaking to us through Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, there were Canaanites in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward Negeb. Let's pray. Lord, as we bow before you this morning, all of us bring in the past of a week that was probably more busy than we expected it to be. We're a little bit more tired this morning than we hoped we were going to be. And so, Lord, we ask you for your help, that you would fill me as I proclaim your people as they hear with your Holy Spirit. Make us attentive, O Lord. We dare not miss this passage. So Lord, help us, we pray. Open our eyes so that we can receive your message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So I don't know if I asked you if we were having lunch or something, and I said, tell me, a spiritual marker in your life. Would you know what I meant by that? In other words, 
Is there something that, that, that you go back to in your life that was a spiritual stake in the ground that God did in your life? I instantly, if you ask me that question, I'm going to go back some 15 years ago to when I started having back trouble and through that, through suffering, God done His work in my life. To some degree, this is what we're seeing in Genesis. We're seeing these gospel landmarks. So every week, Mike had done it last week, we usually go back to the landmark, which is Genesis 3.15, one of our first gospel landmarks. It says, it teaches us very clearly that because of the fall, there will be constant enmity, there will be constant conflict between the seed of Satan and the seed of a woman. But Satan will not have the victory. The promise is that through the seed of a woman, he will be ultimately defeated. And so Genesis 1 through 11 tracks this from a perfect creation to the fall and then this constant cycle. Fallen in wickedness, judgment by God, and then this recreation, this new beginning. We saw that in, with Noah, God's judgment, and then God's springing forth life. And what we're seeing through that is this constant thing. Yes, the world is wicked. It's evil, and it's only going to continue to be so and to get worse. But God has a plan, and nothing that's happening is outside of His control. He's got a seed, He's promised it, and so we see these little beacons of hope. This seed that began with Seth, and now we're seeing it. Now it stops this morning, and it stops in chapter 11. Look at with me in Genesis 11. This is tracking the descendants. And we have worked our way. So Noah's lineage, from Noah's lineage, remember Micah told us, three, his three sons, from that came the whole earth populated. Everyone else was dead except then. And from him we, we come this morning in verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. And so... The lineage stops this morning on a man named Abram. I don't get confused, those guys, and I'm probably going to say Abraham somewhere along the way. God's going to change Abram's name to Abraham. He's going to change Sarai's name to Sarah, but that's not yet. So I'm going to try to call them the right names today. If I don't, just forgive me. Look with me in verse 31. It says, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they sent forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And so we see Terah had three sons. One of his sons was named Abram. And the Ur of the Chaldeans here, Ur means city. So Abram was a city boy. This is Babylonia. It's important. Micah talked to us a little bit about that last week. This is modern-day Iraq. This is where Abram was from. But let me, I know we like chronology. Turn with me to Acts 7. The Bible oftentimes doesn't feel the need to be chronological, and that throws us off sometimes because we like to think linearly all the time, and the Bible doesn't always work that way. Um, but this is really helpful. This was Stephen's final message remember Stephen gave a message 
in the New Testament, and it, it made him a martyr. They killed him for this message. Listen to what he says. very helpful. Acts 7, look at verse 2. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into the land which, which you are now living. That's helpful. It's helpful because we, we understand that this call we're about to talk about happened when he was in the Ur of Chaldeans. So this whole move, the first move from, from the Ur of the Chaldeans to Haran was God-directed. Just think about what do we want to process a lot here as there is always in God's Word. Think about this. He calls an elderly, childless couple from Babylonia and decides to make them the fountainhead, the very launch pad of cosmic redemption. Just think about it. That makes no earthly sense. <laughs> think about it. From this couple, the, the nation of Israel, this first worshiping community will, will arise. We talked about that last week in your growth groups. I hope you had some lively conversation when we said, your salvation is not simply an individual experience. It is something when Christ saves you into Christ, when God saves you into Christ, He saves you into a community, and that community is called the church. He saves you into a community. And here we have the nation of Israel being birthed from God's sovereign choice of a man from the Ur of the Chaldeans. It's amazing. So listen, this is what I want us to get today. We're going to come back to this at the end. Those who truly believe the word of the Lord will forsake all else and become worshipers of the Lord and serve in His program to bring blessings to the world. Let me read that again. Those who believe the word of the Lord will forsake all else to become worshipers of the Lord and serve in His program to bring blessings to the world. Let us be clear, this is not my opinion, nor even Parkwood's opinion. I'm asking you to look at God's Word this morning and see if that's not God's. This is what God has done from the very beginning. And it all began when God calls Abram. Look with me at Genesis 12 now, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land I will show you. And we want to get there this morning. It's important that this faith being demonstrated by obedience, we're going there. But don't jump ahead too quickly this morning because you need to go back to the Ur of the Chaldeans and think about this man named Abraham because this was God revealing himself to a pagan. Abram wasn't Noah, a righteous man who lived above reproach, so God poured his grace out of him. Abram was an idol-worshiping pagan. Turn with me to Joshua 24. Joshua 24 was Joshua's 
address here. Joshua 24, look with me at verse, at verse 2. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. So Abram was brought up. Abram lived. It was his pattern of life to serve other gods. This was the man that God chose to be the father of Israel. The father of faith. What <laughs> we go back to this morning. This was his background. One guy put it this way. The first Jew was a Gentile. The first Hebrew was a heathen. This is what Joshua is reminding God's people. Don't you forget where you come from. Don't you forget. God chose him out of an idol-worshiping pagans. God revealed himself to him. This was the only way he knew who Yahweh was. And then we see in verses 1 and verse 2 this double command. Go and be a blessing. Verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house and to the land I will show you. So go is the imperative. God's not telling them now that you have told me, I need you to pray about what God's will is for your life. He said, go. <laughs> he said, I am the one true God, go. This is the imperative, but this is not the only imperative. Look with me at verse 2. You see the so that? And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. You will here is put in here for our benefit, our language, so that we understand what's trying to be said. But be a blessing is an imperative. He's literally saying, go and be a blessing. And don't miss the point there. We're going to talk about the blessings in a minute. But even for, for Abram to be a blessing, God had to do something. What did this involve? Think about this. Think about what he says. It involved him leaving something. So Abraham believed, and it immediately began to cost him something. He says, leave Haran. This is his country. Remember, they had settled there. Leave his clan. This is your family. Leave your close relatives. This is your father's house. Leave all of it. And go somewhere that I'm going to show you. See, they had come from the Ur of Chaldeans, settled in Haran, but he hadn't done this before. God says, leave it all. This is the story of Abraham. It begins with the conversion of a pagan. And it immediately produces something in this pagan. This believing of God immediately produces a living obedience. A living faith. God calls Abraham to go, but he's not done yet. God also gives him a promise. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, the family, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's important. We're going to come back to that at the end, and we're going to stay there for the next few weeks. Underline that. 
verse, verse 3, the key word here is blessing. Think about this. Abram, 75, with a barren wife, now receives a call to leave his family, and he gets promises that's physically impossible for him to accomplish. But here we see this promise. The blessings of God overshadow the barrenness of the womb of Sarah and overshadows his own age, his own inability. So make no mistake, we're going to see this this week and to come. Abraham's going to struggle right here. Right here is going to be his point of struggling. And we all have done this to some degree if we're not doing it right now. I know I got his promise, maybe, but I sort of feel like I need to help him out. <laughs> Abraham's going to struggle with that. I know I got his promise, me, but I need, to, I need to kick that ball a little bit further down the road myself. God has given Abraham the ability and the mandate to spread the knowledge of God everywhere he goes. We saw this plan being put into action when the, the Tower of Babel, they refused to go and God confused their languages and they forced them to, to spread. Now we're going to see Abraham willingly going to make God's name great. I was hit by this this week. I've just been reading through Samuel in my own private prayer and, and, and time with God. and I noticed that though the Philistines didn't believe in the God of Israel. The God of Israel scared them to death. <laughs> Why? Because they knew the power and the blessings of the God of Israel. This was the plan. Abraham hears God's call. He hears God's promises. And then Abraham believes. Abraham obeys. And Abraham worships. So we see in verse 4, look at that. It says quite simply, so Abram went. <laughs> God said, go. Verse 4 says, so Abraham went just like the Lord told him. Don't you just love it when the lesson's so simple? <laughs> God says, go. Abraham just leaves. And so we see here, faith alone. God reveals himself to, to this man, and he believes him. He believes who he is, and he believes what he's promised. This didn't begin in Haran. This began in the Ur of Chaldeans when he was an idol worshiper, and God revealed himself to him. Now his father's dead, and God tells him to leave everything. But here's the question I ask us this morning. And I asked myself this for years, just a question somebody asked me a long time ago. As you're reading Abraham's story this morning, so let me ask you a question. How do we know that Abraham believed? Did it, did it come with, and I'm not diminishing any of these things, did it come with a commitment card? Would it mean... Is it something, something that he said? Understand, for the first good many verses, Abraham says nothing. He's like quiet Noah. This is the question. 
How do you and I know that Abraham believed? We have to ask this question. I think God's Word clearly shows us there's two ways that we really know, objectively looking on to this story, that Abraham believed by faith alone. The first is that belief is demonstrated by obedience. We see this in verse 4 and 5. Yes, we are saved by faith alone, and so was Abraham. Righteousness being imputed to him because he believed. And that being alone. But what we see is faith is never alone. That is demonstrated. God commands, Abraham departs. Faith is demonstrated by obedience. For Abraham has not uttered one line yet in this, in this narrative. He hasn't said one thing. Luther says it this way. Combating false thinking then as it is now. To think. If faith justifies without works, let us work nothing, is to despise the grace of God. Idle faith is not justifying faith. You need to write that down. So the thrust of this passage is Abraham obediently is acting on the basis of the revelation of God that he received. God, God revealed himself to him. God told him, go, and he goes. But we know this from our, his experience, and we know this from our experience. Obedience often, if not always, encounters opposition. For Abram doesn't live in a righteous culture no more than we do. And so, look with me in verse 6. It says, Abram passed through the land of to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. And at that time, there were Canaanites in the land. So what is this oak of Moreh? Most people believe this is a pagan shrine. Not just a place of worship, but even potentially a place of instruction. In other words, this was a place where the Canaanite priests made their disciples. This is where he finds himself in this path of obedience in alien territory with people who are teaching different ideologies, different religions, and different ways of life. This is where he finds himself in obedience, walking by faith in a land where no one agreed with him. Sound familiar? <laughs> and then we get this first six that's there where it says, and there were Canaanites in the land. Now, if you were the original reader... What would you have said as soon as you read that? Uh-oh. <laughs> That's what the first initial audience would say. My goodness, not them people again. They were the antagonists of the whole book of Genesis. And here we have them just for the original audience's benefit, I think. And these, these, this alien territory was Canaanite territory. How would Abram respond, Abram respond to this? Turn around and go back home. I don't think God's calling me here. Nobody agrees with me. I'm standing here by myself almost. So the reception of the promises and the path of obedience is never without difficulty. God tells you to obey. The whole world's not going to stand around clapping. They're probably going to throw rocks at you. And so we see this grace of God in verse 7. Look at it. 
It says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. This is profound. God keeps doing this. And you just got to put yourself there this morning. Abraham's in a foreign land. They're making disciples. They're prospering. They're living there. They're living the Canaanite dream. And God looks at Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give all of this land. This land don't belong to them. It belongs to you. This brings us to the second way we know Abraham believed. Abraham worshipped. So we see this faith alone demonstrating itself in two primary ways in his life. Obedience and worship. And listen, he didn't go somewhere and build himself a tent so nobody would see. He, he built it right there. <laughs> so God says, this land belongs to you. All these people worshiping their idols and making their disciples. This land belongs to you. And he built an altar right there and worshiped God. This is Abram. In the midst of walking in obedience in a pagan land, he stopped, he reflected on God's promises, and he worshiped. So breathe in your busy life today. God has called you to do something. He's called you to stop. He's called you to reflect on God's promises to you, child of God, and to worship Him. Worship is not an add-on to your life. Studying God's Word is not something we do if we have time. Worship is, is our expression of our faith. We cannot not come and gather together with God's people. I, I can't do it. I can remember being in Africa for eight weeks and I longed to be with Parkwood. I couldn't wait to get home. It was so important some of our friends would FaceTime the services so we could just watch just a little bit just to see our people's faces. God's children love God's people. We are called to worship Him together no matter what situation we find ourselves in and no matter what a culture we live in. How do we know He believed? He obeyed and He worshiped. The purpose of worship is to proclaim the name no matter where we find ourselves. And so we see this very clearly. Last week, those who seek the fame through disobedience will be brought low. Those who seek to make God's name great will be, will's name will be made great. Why? Because they are the ones who get the privilege of proclaiming the name. They are the ones. Those who believe, those who obey God's word, and those who worship his name. This is what we see in Abram. We see it consistently. Verses 8 and 9, he's going where God told him to go. And as he goes, God says, this is going to be your land. He worships him. Right there, I believe. What is he doing? I believe. So God calls Abraham and he believes. We know he believes because he obeys and he worships, trusting in God's promises. But then we see God's promises begins to produce something. Immediately as he's going through this, we see God blesses Abram. In these subsequent chapters, the last part of chapter 12, verse 13 and verse 14, is showing what Abraham faced in his obedience. As he went on the path of obedience, it wasn't perfect obedience. It wasn't by, by a long stretch, but it was consistently progressive. 
So God blesses Abraham despite Abram's deception. So Genesis 12, 10 to 20, we get this story. Look at verse 10. It says, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for there was a famine was severe in the land. And so we, we get this picture, this our faith-filled giant, <laughs> this man who's, who's, who's worshiping God in the midst of enemy territory, so to speak. And we see in verses 11 to 12, the giant falls. How? Fear. Fear. You ever struggle with this? I know God is sovereignly in control in my head, <laughs> but the way my life is working out in my worrying and in my anxiety, my can't go to sleep and waking up early and all these things is saying that it's all up to me to make this happen. This self-preserving fear leads to his wife being taken into the harem of Pharaoh. How would you feel, brothers, if you saw that happen into your life because you were too much of a coward to trust in God? <laughs> this is what happens to the man of faith. It wasn't perfect obedience. But we see this amazing thing. Look at with me in verse 16. That despite Abraham's deception, despite the situation, Abraham is still being blessed by the Egyptians. And so we get this picture in verse 17 that everybody in Pharaoh's house except Sarai is afflicted with something. And so it, it doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure out what the problem is or who the problem is. It's this one lady who nothing else is wrong with her. He must have, that guy must have done something to me. So the, the Egyptians, the Pharaoh sends them packing, but he sends them packing blessed despite himself. And so in Genesis 13, we see, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into Negeb. And Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And so Abram goes back from where he came from. This is where he initially had came. He went down into Egypt. Now he goes back up. More wealthy than he, than he left. Abraham is blessed despite himself. And, and now we see in verse 13, despite family conflict. There's problems on the home front. Genesis 13, we see this picture of both Lot and Abraham very rich. Verse 6 says that the land that they were in wasn't able to sustain them. And so this is the future land with milk and honey, but it's not flowing yet. And we have not only Lot, we have Abram, we also have Canaanites in the land. And so there's family conflict. All our animals, we don't have enough place to graze and there's fighting going on. And so Abram comes up with a solution. The solution is separation. So what Abram, do, Abram does is tells Lot, okay, Lot, check it out. Whatever you want, you take it. I'll take the other part. You just pick. We're not going to have problems here. And I know a lot's been made of this, and it is. Lots, lots you can see. Lots living by what? How's Lot making his decisions? By what he sees. 
This will destroy his wife because what he sees puts him in the path of wickedness. It will destroy his wife. It will destroy his children. It will cause all kinds of problems in the future. Abraham, uh, Abraham doesn't feel the need to fight for it, and so he lets him choose it. I think this is just awesome. God gives Abram a little reminder. Look at verse 14. So this happens. They separate. See right there in the text. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot is separated from him. So they're separate. He, Lot goes to the green pastures near Sodom. That's where, that's where it's happening at. That's where all the trade is. That's, I'm going to go over there. Abram goes towards the land of Canaan. Look what it says. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, and eastward, and westward. For the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. In other words, Abram, you can give it to him if you want to, but I said it's yours. To your offspring this land will go. This is going to come from your seed. I'm going to give it to yours. So he reminds them. Just fine, you're going to give it to him, but one day it's going to be your offspring. All of it. So we see God telling him to go, and he goes. And as he goes, he worships. He's not done. After God tells him this, what does he do? Verse 18, as he goes and walks over the land that God's promised him, so Abraham moved his tent and came and settled to the oaks of Mamre, which were, which were at Hebron, and he built an altar to the Lord, worshiping. So Abraham is blessed despite his deception, despite family conflict in his, in his own house, and despite warring kings that end up capturing in Lot. This is Genesis 14. So Genesis 14, 1 to 2, a war breaks out between kings. Now these are pagan kings. They're all allying up. We've seen this in our own history. They get this group and this, this group, and they start fighting each other. And because Lot's family was close to Sodom, he gets caught up in this melee. And so Lot and his family is captured. Genesis 14, verse 11 and 12 says, So when the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provision and went their way, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So what does Abram do? See a different side of Abram here. Verses 13 to 15, someone escapes. It says, one escapes and told Abram the Hebrew was living at the Oaks of Omri, the Amorite, the brother of Eshgal and Aner. I wish they'd name these guys Tom and Henry or something. It'd be easier to say, wouldn't it? <laughs> these were allies of Abram. So what do we see? Abram living in a pagan world, obeying the Lord, worshiping the Lord, yet he has allies. So in verse 14, he gets this Gideon-type army. Isn't that something? 318, this Gideon-type army, this little small group of guys, and he goes and defeats an ally of multiple kings. And he brings Lot and all of his things back. And we have this amazing interaction between two kings. Look with me at verse 18. First we have in verse 17, the king of Sodom comes out. Now in verse 18 it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God 
Most High. And of all the characters in the Old Testament, save just a couple, this is probably one of your most important. We're going to talk about him in more detail next week. But Melchizedek means my king is righteous. Salem is another name for Jerusalem. You can write down Psalm 76 too if you want to look that up later. And so we get this. This would have blown the initial audience away. We get this king of Salem who was also a priest. And he comes out and he meets. And we see his blessing in verse 18. It's, it said, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, for he was a king of the Most High. Look at verse 19. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by the God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and be blessed and blessed be God the Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So this king and his priest comes out to Abram, and what does he say? He reminds him, this victory that you experienced wasn't because you're great, it's because your God is great. So in the midst of this pagan culture arises this king and priest who worships God. So Abram's not by himself. I talk about that. Where did this guy come from? What I want you to see is not only the message is clear, Abram, God did this. Bless him. Abram's response. Look at verse 20. So Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So Abraham gives. This, is, this wasn't a tax. He wasn't giving him a tax. This was priest. He was giving him an offering. A spontaneous offering. See, he immediately understood this man represents the Most High God. And as an act of his worship, he gave. So living faith is a believing faith where we obey, we worship, and we give. This was his act of obedience. And here's the world coming at it again. You're always going to get this. Now we've got Sodom's king response. Verse 21, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Now, hallelujah, Abraham, Abraham says something. <laughs> He's just been obeying up to this point. Now we get to see him say something. Look at what he says. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing. And he goes on to say, but what the men have eaten. Let these other guys take what they want. In other words, you're not going to rob God of his glory. This was from God and he gets the credit. So he takes nothing and he gives an offering. Listen to this, quote, Abram's victory was an outworking of the promises of God, showing that he had indeed become a powerful tribal leader on the international scene and that those who shared his mission would share his blessing. Finally, Abraham chose to wait for the blessings of God rather than accept anything from the king of Sodom, for he would not be satisfied with the spoils of war, end quote. In other words, 
Abraham believed that the promises of God were better. And he proved it, not simply by what he said, but what he did. He lived this way. This is, this is absolutely devastatingly possible that you can experience some kind of spiritual victory and rob God of his glory from it by taking the credit. Or letting someone else get the credit. There's plenty of people who, are, who would love to rob God of the victories that God wrought, wrought brings in your life. God gets the victory. James says every good and perfect gift comes from Him. So what today to all of this? Are you being blessed along with Abraham? Turn with me to Galatians 3. If you haven't read Galatians 3... I would challenge you this afternoon, just as you sit around and, and rest, to, to read Galatians 3. Galatians 3 and 4 is, I don't know, for me, one of, the, one of the most awesome passages in Scripture. But Galatians 3 talks a lot about Abraham. Talk, we'll, use, we'll mention this this week and next week. Galatians 3, look with me at verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, was Paul's, was Abraham saved by his works? No. He was saved because he believed God, and that faith alone, righteousness was imputed to him. It was counted to him. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall then all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. In other words, that promise that he gave him back in Genesis 12, the fact that me and you are sitting here today when putting our faith in Christ alone is evidence of the gospel that he always intended for the Gentiles to be brought into the new covenant by faith alone. And so we look back to Abraham and we say he believed by faith alone, but faith in Abraham's life was never alone. Look down at verse 26. Galatians 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all the sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. We go back to that moment in Abraham, and now we go to the cross. question is, do you believe? What question's coming next? How do you know you believe? Brothers and sisters, I'm out of time this morning. I don't want to dare get up on a hobby horse or anything. You hear me. There's a danger in evangelical Christianity in the biblical South, and we must address it. We are saved by faith alone. But we do not pray a prayer or sign a card and that makes you a Christian. We are a Christian because we have put on Christ. 
Christ has took out a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Can we be the same? No. Those who truly believe the word of the Lord will forsake all else to become worshipers of the Lord and serve Him in His program. Yes, God has a program and there's one program to bring blessing to the world through the one gospel of Jesus Christ. That's His program. And I hope you picked up a, the prayer and fasting as we're praying and fasting for the North American Mission Offering, Annie Armstrong Easter Offering that will be next Sunday. But I wanted you to hear some of these. It's on that paper. The five most unreached North American cities. Montreal, 0.7% of the population is evangelical. Vancouver, 0.7% of the population is evangelical. Salt Lake City, 23 of the population evangelical. Toronto, 0.3% of the population evangelical. Boston, 3.5% of the population is evangelical. We have work to do here. This is our North America. This is, this is the plot of ground God has put us on. We proclaim His name with our one life and with one message. Let's pray. Lord, you have told us what our life must be about. And so we, we ask, what our old brother said one time, how then shall we live? Because you are the only true God and you have revealed yourself through a person and his name is Jesus Christ. What else must we do? What else can we do but serve the King? So Lord, do a work in us as your church that we be not satisfied with doing what we've always done and getting the same results. But Lord, we must live lives of missionary sacrifice so that we may go. Lord, we read those percentages. They're people. They have a soul. They're going to spend eternity somewhere. What must we do? How must we live? Lord, we thank you for the cross. It clarifies our vision. We thank you for the mandate that says, Stephen, you exist to make disciples, so go do it. So, Lord, Break us of our pride, of our business, and give us one singular mission to make your name great. Lord, this we pray as we stand, that this song may be our heart, that it may begin in our own homes, but that it does not stop us, that your name deserves to be resounded to the ends of the earth, and Lord, we long to be a part of it. We pray, allow us to be part of what you're doing. Thank you that you told us that we can. Now let us stand and ascribe value to your name alone. We pray this in our Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Stand with us.